This episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast is sponsored by AWS Energy. AWS brings the most advanced and secure cloud services and deep industry expertise across energy, utilities, and sustainable energy sectors. Together with a broad partner ecosystem, AWS is accelerating the energy transition through practical innovations to deliver energy efficiently, reliably, sustainably, and responsibly. Learn more at aws.amazon.com slash energy. Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I am here today with Mike Umbro, partner at Premier Resource Management. PRM is a domestic clean energy company based in Bakersfield, California. They're developing a geothermal energy storage project in the San Joaquin Valley in Kern County, California. Instead of deep technology, we are going to be getting into the weeds of the of the project, the how, and just kind of, you know, getting our boots into the field, if you will. So I think this is one that all of you other engineers and geologists, you're not going to want to miss this one. So Mike, thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would, please share with me and the audience your background and a quick introduction to yeah. Also, can I call it PRM? Yeah, PRM's is that okay? good. Uh, yeah, PRM's great. Uh, keeps it easy. Um, yeah, so background on me. I'm, uh, first of all, stoked to be here. Thank you for including us in the conversation on geothermal out in California and, and geothermal energy storage uh, in West Kern County, which is where we're operating. But my background, I'm a investment banker by trade. Spent most of the early part of my career partnering private equity money with upstream oil and gas management teams. Uh, a lot of that work was focused in South Texas, West Texas, uh, mid-continent region. And in 20, I'd say 2014, 2015, I made the decision I wanted to be an operator, an energy developer, I guess. And uh, take the vow of poverty that I now realize it is, particularly in California. But uh, yeah, that's kind of my background. So we've been at PRM just to close the, the background story, developing this project since 2018. Started as an oil project and qu- quickly transitioned to geothermal energy storage here. Uh, I say quickly, but over the past two two, two plus years. That is interesting. And I want to get into that a little bit more. So 
let's talk about kind of what that timeline mm-hmm. has been and what has happened since 2018 up to present. Mm-hmm. This specific project, mm-hmm. what what can you share with us about this specific project? And also maybe a little bit about that whole thing that you just said and skated yeah. over. It was an oil project. Now the focus really is geothermal. Yes. What, let's talk about that just a little bit now, and I'm sure we'll get into the weeds. Yeah, too. absolutely. I think it's an important question because we talk a lot, regardless of sector of the energy spectrum, oil and gas, geothermal, we talk a lot about transition and new energy projects. And so our case is really that. We, we started, again, I'm born and raised in, in San Diego. I fell into the oil and gas industry. And we started with very basic criteria. We want to be an oil and gas producer in California. We want to be on the west side of Kern County. We want to be in Kern County. We do not want to be in coastal regions. We do not want to be in an urban setting because there's a lot of urban oil and gas drilling in California, a long history of that. But we did that for a number of reasons. One, we wanted to be um, in Kern County favorable regulatory environment at the local permitting level. Uh, Number two, we wanted to be away from the coast, away from sensitive marine ecosystems. Uh, Number three, we wanted to be on the west side of the San Joaquin Valley, where you have prolific oil fields with rich lives dating back to the early 1900s, in some cases, 1890s. So you have a rich history of energy production on that west side of the southern San Joaquin Valley. And that was our criteria going in 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 2018. Really before that, this project started a little bit before myself. Um, And then the reason for going into geothermal was another kind of cascading uh, series of events where you saw the energy transition was, I would say, discussed in 2018. You know, the climate has always kind of been there for the past few decades, but this transition really started ramping up. And then the pandemic hit, and then it seemed like coming out of pandemic, the whole, it was just, hey, we're going to be on a zero carbon energy system, whether it's liquid fuels or your electricity generation in California, no matter any way you slice it. And that was a really, I credit, I think our management team for just saying, hey, we've put a lot of blood, sweat and tears into this oil and gas project. But hey, what a phenomenal opportunity when we really started to look at what we could do from storing heat in the reservoir. And then what can we do with bringing that heat back out of the reservoir to produce clean power? And and all of these puzzle pieces just really aligned for us to go into geologic thermal energy storage, which I, I presume we'll talk about ad, ad nauseum here, so I won't spoil it. But that that's really the background of our history of just saying, hey, we want to align with the state of California. We, we have this beautiful project that would be a great domestic oil and gas project. But at the end of the day, we want to be doing this in 2045 and 2050. We're not just trying to flip this asset. So let's develop a project that really is for the people of California and, you know, importantly aligns with the government objectives for the people of California. Yeah, absolutely. Now you're absolutely right. Let's talk about geothermal energy storage geologic subsurface energy storage 
And just in case, I know I've talked about it before, and I would hope everybody knows what it is by now, but I'm sure not everybody does. So for the audience, for those listening, for those that you will ultimately bring into the conversation, what is geothermal energy storage? Yes, it's a great question. And I, I should throw this, I am not an engineer, which might be a good way to explain this because I don't always go super in the weeds technical. Um, but kind of bridging bridging this conversation between oil and gas reservoirs and geotests or geothermal energy storage, 70% of the oil reservoirs on the west side or really in Kern County are thermally enhanced. So oil and gas operators are taking natural gas as a feedstock, putting that into a steam generator and then putting that downhole to inject steam in the oil reservoir to enhance the, the oil recovery because it's a heavy oil, heavy asphaltine based crude. So I say that just to give a history of what we're transitioning from, which is a carbon intensive way to produce oil and natural gas um, to where we're going, which is zero emission, clean, clean, uh, low carbon fuels uh, that are a byproduct out of the oil reservoir. And so we're using that same oil reservoir, which in our case is porous, permeable sandstone at a depth of about 1200 feet. So shallow, shallow oil reservoir. And what we're doing is we're taking parabolic trough, uh, concentrated solar at surface. So that displaces your natural gas as a method of, of heating the reservoir. So we're, we're harnessing that sunlight into the parabolic trough, the solar array. That solar array concentrates, uh, each trough concentrates onto a pipe in front of it that has a working fluid that's heated to 700F. That goes to a heat exchange, which we meet at that heat exchange with brackish reservoir water. So we remove the oil as a contaminant of this process, and then we bring up high saline brackish water that has no other purpose but to be in, in a reservoir and uh, it's non-potable, can't use it for agriculture, so it's great. We're not using fresh water, but we heat that brackish water to 500F, and then we re-inject it in the reservoir. So uh, we know the thermodynamics of, of steam floods and the reaction uh, that these porous permeable sandstones have to, uh, to natural gas-fired heat. <laughs> so nothing changes there. And we're heating the reservoir to 500F over about a 12-month period. Once you have that reservoir hot, that effectively becomes your thermal energy storage container. That is your battery, uh, whatever you want to call it. And by the way, it stores 1,000 hours of heat. So if you have an event where we're producing, we're not modeling to, to produce it this way, but if you have a seasonal event, you can be discharging from that reservoir for up to 42 days or longer and still be producing power before you need to recharge. So a phenomenal, the earth is a phenomenal uh, source of storage as I'm sure you've talked to many people about. <laughs> yeah, that that's really exciting to hear and think about the different ways that we can use the subsurface mm -hmm. from that regard. And 
And I, I guess I, I always look back at winter storm Yuri. Everybody seems to look back at that February, 2021 mm-hmm. as a huge, huge, uh, proponent or, or, um, something that says, Hey, we need long duration energy storage, or we need more natural gas. But as you pointed out, you, you can store a thousand hours. Whereas if you were to convert those three to seven days of really bad Mm -hmm. weather into hours, we're really only talking about a couple hundred hours. Right. And, and so it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, step change difference in what you could actually use that power for. Absolutely. And as you were talking, it made me think of El Nino or La Nina, where we would have a seasonal variation and potentially lower than projected energy, Mm -hmm. but not necessarily a complete shutdown of the wind or the solar, which is a great opportunity for something like a, like a geotest system to step in and say, well, we can, we can meet the demands and make the whole season still, still happy. Go right. Yeah. I think that's a really good point because a lot of folks and just generally speaking, I view a a lot of people talk about, you know, Oh, we need some batteries for storage. We need some lithium ion batteries for storage. Well, those are, you know, four hour duration. And a lot of these crisis, as you mentioned, Superstorm Uri in Texas, a couple of days, 72 hours, whatever it is. Uh, a, a really wet winter in California, we, we look back at the pricing at our substation for, for power generation on the spot market. It's like, wow, we would have been on with this kind of a system 24-7 the whole month of December because the rates were absurd. You, you and, and we talk about that a lot in our, in our modeling. Um, you know, solar irradiance is variable. And so for us, when you're looking at, hey, you're going to use these troughs, well, just because you're in California does not mean the sunlight and, and the irradiance is great every year. Last year, it was not good. <laughs> and then you had this scenario where, yeah, you, you know, even your flat panel PV trying to charge lithium ion batteries for those days or weeks where it was cloudy. Those batteries were not charging on on clean power. I'll tell you that because it wasn't available. So uh, sorry not to kind of go off on a tangent there, but I think it's a really important reminder. It, yeah, it definitely is. And so the the way that that this works into that whole system, mm-hmm. I sh- I'm sure we could sit here and talk about that for for now for hours on how opportunistic and how beneficial ultra long duration energy storage is. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of things about your project specifically that I get really excited about, but it is your I project. I love that. I'm glad so you're excited know, about, about it. <laughs> yeah. So I, I want to know, what do you find most exciting about your project? Gosh, I was talking to my wife about this just at lunch. It's just, it's, For me, it's loving what you do. And I already, I loved the oil and gas sector. I really do. I think, you know, uh, of course, mainstream, it kind of gets hijacked as, hey, you're killing everybody. Let's ignore the progress you've helped society make. Uh, Let's focus on only the negative. But when you get in the industry and you know the industry, it's so family oriented, a lot of really good people 
the culture is really, hey, let's support our local community. Let's support the United States. So just kind of giving that background on, on myself, what I'm so excited about is to be able to look at a transition away from oil and gas and not that far away. You know, we're using this this oil reservoir and we believe you can use depleted oil reservoirs and and being a part of the transition in a meaningful way has me really excited. I you know, not you know, you see a lot of things in the climate spectrum that you kind of have a little bit of a side eye about like is that really making things better? Um, for me, I have a lot of questions about, about battery minerals and lithium ion and, and not to go that way, but there's, there, there's certain elements when you look at things holistically that, um, don't give you the warm and fuzzy with every climate technology. But for us, that's what I'm most excited about that. I can honestly look at this and say to myself, wow, I'm, I'm going to be stoked about this for 40 years and beyond. It's just it aligns with where the where the world wants to go. It aligns with where California wants to go. It decarbonizes industry. It provides transition jobs to oil and gas people that to date, Kern County, when I go there every week, it's like a funeral. Like people are losing jobs. Mm. And so that's that's really what I'm so excited about, to be aligned with where the community wants to go and to give people an economic, you know, option to, to, to keep working. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that being, being super mm-hmm. exciting every time. So I, everybody knows I have a day job. I'm the geothermal lead for a company Tavera, And as that, I do get to hire people every That's once cool. in a while. And that is absolutely one of the best parts of the job is, is seeing that job creation mm-hmm. and seeing the the impact and direct economic value that you're giving back to to your industry. Totally. It's really yeah. fun. Now, when we think about your project, you've kind of laid out why you're in in the western side of Kern County and and how you ended up on this specific location. Mm-hmm. I'm curious from a larger perspective. Mm-hmm. Do you see any any significant impacts or any type of of larger statement that is being made or that can be made or or market mm-hmm. movement with this project taking place in California mm-hmm. as like a almost a first of mm-hmm. its kind and a first mover and it being in California? Absolutely. A hundred percent. I think it can be a fantastic transition, really the only transition I've seen so far for local oil and gas mm-hmm. producers uh, or the industry at large. But also, there are so many places in the United States that have great solar irradiance and oil reservoirs and depleted oil reservoirs is at that. And so I think there's a tremendous opportunity for the country to look at what we're doing after we demonstrate that it works. Um but we're very confident in that. And, and a, a piece of that, a big piece of that is taking existing technologies and marrying them with the reservoir in our case. And so it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. And I think it could be a game, an absolute game changer, not only on low carbon fuel production, um, but also, you know, obviously the main focus is clean power and dispatchable clean power that, 
you can align with the demand characteristics of any particular location. And I think a lot of that gets uh, not to go too far into the electricity market side of things, but I think every state, every region has a different demand profile, a different peak time. Our peak is 4 to 9 p.m. in California. It's different in Texas. Um, It's different in Maine. It's different everywhere. And so I think that's one of the really cool things when you look at geotests and look at other regions is saying, wow, this this can really be used to fit the purpose of what your grid needs. And that, I think that's really important because maybe you don't need to build out as much um, transmission infrastructure as you once thought. Maybe you can come on and displace fossil generation at nighttime, which is what we're looking at. So I think there's certain characteristics that we, there's not really a calculation to, to show the impact, but there's, there's fringe benefits that kind of, scatter the periphery of geotests, I guess, is how I would phrase it. Do you see those fringe benefits as being a significant value or a, or a needed value in order to make geotests popular, Mm -hmm. I guess, everywhere? I think so. I think to, to make it popular, you've got to be able to finance it. And I, I see those benefits, you know, being able to be demand aligned, being able to uh, trade power around when the market needs your power. I think that will bring investment. So, yeah, I think that's very closely linked that, that these little benefits really start to get magnified when you're in a high interest rate environment, when, you know, offshore wind projects are getting canceled, other clean power projects are getting canceled, clean tech stocks are getting hammered and then we're really going to get to this like okay this has to make money to make sense and for power to make money you have to be providing clean power when the grid needs it when other sources of clean power cannot do it so for us that's nighttime that's peak that's when the wind stops blowing that's when the sun stops shining and that's also when you have a a policy framework in california that says hey by the way you're going to have 100 percent clean power in 20 years whether you like it or not it's happening so that's going to bring the price framework up to where this, you know, this will continue to make money well into the future. And that kind of gets, you know, back into Mm. it all kind of cascades, I guess, those fringe benefits. Yeah. Yeah, they definitely do. And it it sounds like there's, there's several different challenges that you laid Mm. out there that are almost correlated to the fringe benefits and how you, how you can show their Mm. value from your perspective what are some of the biggest challenges that either you have faced or, or you think you will mm-hmm. face say right mm-hmm. now versus five years from now versus maybe a, a different location or, or, or a different time period? Yeah, that's a really great question. I wish I had the answer on like future challenges. What we're dealing with today in terms of challenge, the challenges are you know, permitting, you know, California has uh, a law called the California Environmental Quality Act, CEQA. A a lot of people nationally would be uh, familiar with NEPA, National uh, Environmental Protection Act. Um, So CEQA is more stringent, more rigorous than NEPA, uh, which a lot of things in California happen to be 
uh, to a higher standard, which is great, um, which is a challenge to to any energy project. So for us, uh, that requires a lot of biologic surveys, flora, fauna, where even for a place like us in the remote west side of the valley where nobody lives, we still look at every plant, every animal, subsurface, geology, water samples from every water well around us. I mean, it's a tremendous challenge just to what we say, or in any energy, just to quote unquote, meet CEQA. Um, But as you meet it, that gets you more excited because as you meet it, you say, wow, now I've, I've jumped over this hurdle that only a very select few have been able to jump over that bar. Uh, so I'd say that's the biggest challenge. And then number two, it, which is tied into this very closely, is financing anything in California because investors that do not have experience in California just see California as like a big red stop sign. Like I'm going to give you money and then it's just going to pause because you're never going to get permits because of things like CEQA. So uh, those are those are the two common challenges that are just so tied hand in hand. That I didn't really think about that from that from the financing side of being able to communicate that and being able to help your potential investors understand, hey, there may be a a long pause in the in what's happening mm-hmm. here. It's nothing to be alarmed about. It's working in California. Right. Just be prepared. And that clearly would scare many people away mm-hmm. if if you're not used yeah. to that. And that's a really good uh, like the way you say that is perfect because you know, we got fortunate we we basically interviewed our first three investors for I guess what you call a family friends round for for our money in 2020. And we have really good investors. They're, they're Bakersfield folks. They understand the lay of the land. They understand exactly what you said. Hey, there could be a pause. It's nothing to be alarmed about. We're just during this time where we're trying to get these permits. Now we're permitting ahead. Now we're trying to do a whole boatload of front end permitting. When you normally hear like front end engineering and design, it's like, no, you're front end <laughs> environmental engineering <laughs> and permitting uh maybe it should be feet uh but <laughs> but then yeah i mean then we it it gets into then talking about that that dividend really pays for itself later so so we see it hopefully giving us a big boost as we're talking to new investors at you know a higher level of investment for geotest saying hey Look, we've done five years of really rigorous environmental work. We've we've taken it in the shorts on that pause for you. Now let's use your money to like make this have rocket boosters and, and go. So it'll be kind of like that. Wait, now we're in a you know a hundred meter dash. Now it's time to go. So it's fun. Yeah, yeah. I there's a lot of questions on that that I've got about private equity funding versus versus other mm-hmm. funding mechanisms and how you would go about valuing the fact that you've got all of that at, at that point, when you have that front mm-hmm. end permitting work already mm-hmm. done and the ability to actually take your money and, and start actually applying it and moving it forward. Mm-hmm. 
I think that's a, a totally different podcast. Yeah, right. If you have something that you want to highlight there in that realm, because I, it just is, I don't even know what the question is, but there's, <laughs> yeah. there's a, you, you understand the typical way that a geothermal project would be valued or a, or an oil and gas mm-hmm. project. And I think it, it is not the same in terms of what you're describing sounds completely different than a project that I would think of in sure. Texas or even Nevada or somewhere yeah. else. It's very, uh, It is. And I think the best way to answer um, that question or topic is it comes down to your management team and the fact that for us, we're all in this market. We've all been in this market for for our whole careers. And you have to have a team that is really focused on your market and what you're trying to develop and then finding an investor, whether it's private equity, whether it's, uh, you know, grants that we're applying to combination of both. Cause a lot of those are matching, um, or public markets, which is a goal. Um, it has to be, Hey, these, this management team is really the right team for this, this asset, this geotest and this, this opportunity. And so, um, I think that's the best way to kind of approach it. And that's what most private equity will, mm. you know, at least tell you on face value, well, we really want to back good management teams. Well, it goes beyond just good management teams to those that really have the project well-defined and have the skill set to execute it because there are a lot of unknowns. Yes, there are. There are a lot of unknowns. Now you did mention partnering and, and teams and applying for Mm -hmm. grants. And one thing, maybe not everybody knows is that with your project, you are part of a partnership with multiple national Mm -hmm. labs, government funded federal research institutions. Mm -hmm. How do you see that as being an enabler of this project towards its future Mm -hmm. success? Uh, That's a great question. And I didn't know at first, you know, about a year ago, year and a half ago, I came to our team and I said, hey, we really got to tap into the national labs and the Department of Energy because we're a transition project and th- that we need we need them. We need them. There's no way around it. We need them. And uh, we partnered with National Renewable Energy Lab, Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, which is phenomenal to have a, a lab uh, in our state, uh, Idaho National Lab, who's really involved in in earth sciences broadly and nuclear, uh, and then, um, the geothermal technologies office. And we announced this kickoff in February of 23. And at first I didn't know because, you know, we're a developer, they're the lab. None of us really had experience working with labs, but it's really developed into an awesome relationship for us where we can bounce ideas off of them they can bounce concepts off of us. You know, we're a business partner in a sense. We're trying to be the case study for geothermal energy storage on this west side. The labs and different individuals and different consultants that that you and I know and you know uh, a lot of them independent of, of this project and concept. Um, a lot of people that have written pap- concept papers about geotests, so they have this level of enthusiasm. And that's really where it's brought me to. And, and it's Mm. bringing our excitement with that enthusiasm is it's just really good energy within, um, 
I guess a team or we call it, it was announced as a geothermal partnership uh, just around the excitement about, Hey, can we help you? And can you help us and in our, in our respective lanes? And it's, it's really been a lot of fun. I've really had a lot of fun doing it. That's a really good point. I think something I, I've probably said it on the podcast before, but I was, I was in academia for so long and one of the critiques that I had was that you would do all of this mm-hmm. work and then it would sit on the shelf for five mm-hmm. or 10 years and seemingly nobody actually ever put it into mm-hmm. practice or, or turned what you did into something that had a sizable direct impact on society. Mm-hmm. So the way you're explaining it, you're bringing together people who are really excited about that really high high heady research Mm -hmm. stuff you're bringing together your group and and wanting to develop projects and produce energy and you're you're complementing each other and compounding your excitement and that is it's it's the best of both worlds and it's so exciting to to hear that value and that that forward momentum that you can get from yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's kind of that, I mean, you hear when you watch news or like the public private partnership type language that you hear politicians say, but it's really, it is kind of like you yeah. say, a lot of people doing this really heady work and then they're not of the mindset of, oh, I'm going to go lease some land and I'm going to go do a geotest project now that I've written this paper about it. And we're coming to them saying, hey, we've got the property You've got the, let's call it some intellectual property. Want to come play in the real world. You want to come bring the lab into the real world, into the business world. And, and then they get excited because it's like, oh, wow, those guys really know this stuff. And uh, not me. I'm just the, <laughs> I'm not the engineer, but our engineer is like, wow, those guys really know what to do. And, you know, just then you see the brainstorming yeah. happen back and forth. And for me in particular, as a non-technical pedigree i'm just like blown away just having fun working with really smart people and learning a lot and i love being able to learn at you know middle of my career so it's fun yeah yeah and it's always important to have somebody who is is less technical because you i'm I'm sure that you hang with them and have plenty of these conversations to the point where you're talking about geotests and reservoir management yeah. and all of the all of the buzzwords that that sound foreign to anybody outside of subsurface energy. But it it's always important because we have to be able to communicate this to to yeah. anybody. If we can go to Thanksgiving and have these conversations and have people walk away saying, you know what? Geothermal energy storage sounds like a good yeah. idea. I think that's where we really start to exactly, win. exactly. And I try to have those conversations. My daughter had a little birthday party this weekend. I'm talking to one of the dads who's an orthopedic surgeon and kind of just explaining what I'm doing. He's like, "Oh, wow, that seems really cool." And then it's it's like, "Yes, that's the response that it should get. This is good. It's happening." <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So. Assuming success, assuming that the partnership goes well and you get your wells drilled Mm -hmm. and we are five years down the line with long-term, ultra-long duration energy storage Mm -hmm. in Western Kern County, what what comes next? After that first installation, Mm -hmm. 
Where do we? That's the really exciting part about this. We feel like we're going to demonstrate it. We're going to show it works. And then there's a lot of places it can go. And that's the most exciting part about it is once we show it works, there is so much reservoir out there. A lot of people in California and even in maybe in Bakersfield might not realize the west side of Kern County is world-class reservoir. And so that's where you go next. I mean, that's where you've got this, the surface to put, you know, solar fields, solar arrays. And that's where you have existing well bores that you can repurpose into geotests, which may just be as simple as just getting rid of the natural gas and the, and the, 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 steam, the steam boilers that you're using and then just using a geotest system and getting rid of all that carbon that you were burning completely. And so it, then it starts cascading into this really, really, I think, fast-paced conversion of oil fields to geotests. And, and literally what that means, I'll give a few numbers, not to get too technical, but the California Air Resources Board uh, has the low carbon fuel standard. And some people might be familiar with that, but what what the what that program does is it will assign a carbon intensity to every barrel of crude produced or imported into the state of California. So in our case, our field it starts at a two point eight four. Well, when you put natural gas and steam downhole, it'll jump your carbon intensity above twenty. So you've got a lot of these very carbon intense producing fields. On the west side, now you're talking, well, not only can I bring energy storage, but now I can give people low carbon fuel. I can give people low carbon crude that is a fraction of the carbon intensity that you're going to get from OPEC. And just just to keep every not to go into the oil and gas world too far, but just so everybody understands, California consumes the number two uh, in terms of oil in, in the States, you know, Texas, then California, California burns the most jet fuel, number two on gasoline. We need a lot of oil. Um, so that's where this gets really exciting is, Oh, by the way, the fields that are producing this now they're, they've been producing for a hundred years. So they're not, they're depleting, you know, reservoirs, which is also exciting because, you know, you're going to produce the oil out of those things. You're going to ramp down your production while you're ramping it down, you're going to be dramatically decreasing the carbon intensity. And now you're taking an abandonment liability and you're turning it into a storage mechanism for thermal energy storage. And now you're just pumping hot water through that bad boy and making geothermal power and clean power. So that's where it goes next. Where it goes next is once we demonstrate it, everybody will do it. And we have no misconception that we're going to be the only ones or we're going to, you know, dominate the market. We're, we're just going to show people how to do it and, and, you know, let the race begin. <laughs> well, I, I completely agree. I think that is, it's very exciting to hear about and, and exciting to think about the, those cascading effects and compounding values mm-hmm. when we talk about the not only the transition of existing oil and gas fields but the transition of the the fuels Mm -hmm. and being able to directly play into the low carbon fuel standards and just taking it from even from that 
really California centric viewpoint and where what can happen there in your field and and for Western Kern County to then think about all of the potential reservoirs worldwide that that this could apply to. Mm -hmm. It's very exciting. Mm-hmm. On on that note, I think that's a good a good high to to end that part of the conversation yeah. on. Now I want to ask you my final okay. questions. These are the questions I ask all of my yep. guests. That first one being, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? I was just t- so I was just talking about. There's a store called Rourke, and I was like, "What's the name? Where's Rourke come from?" And uh, I I uh, was talking to the the employee and so the fountainhead was great uh by ann rand and i think that was a book that really kicked off my just alignment with doing what you love and doing doing it your way and um just having no regrets and just going all out like i'm gonna do me and that's going to be the v- best version of me and then the best version of, you know, what I can bring to society. So I, I would say the Fountainhead was uh, it's kind of stands out right now as one of my faves. All right. I will add that one to yeah. the list. Now, the next question is, how do we get to net zero? Oof. Can we get to net zero is one thing I ask myself. I mean, we couldn't get to stop the spread to zero. We've never fully – we're still burning wood and dung. Um, But to get to net zero, I think you have to have a reset of the timeline. I think think we can get to a place where – Zero takes on a realistic meaning. And when I think of zero, I think of, um, I think of zero harm, to be honest. I think of zero harm. I don't think that it is realistic to get to zero carbon emissions globally and then get to that level and stay there for a period of 500 years to start seeing if we can reduce our anthropogenic force on the broader climate. So my way of spinning that question would be to get to zero. I think we have to get to zero harm. And and to me, that is mm-hmm. finding local energy production, finding production that you, you can touch and see and feel and know every link of the supply chain, because I think that's a big, um, a big, landmine that is looming for the energy transition as people start doing what I would term a supply chain audit about where they find even battery minerals. So where do those come from and how are those processes energized and what do those manufacturing facilities consume for energy to make a battery? So I think there's going to be this, like we're trying to get to net zero, but then at, before we get there, there's going to be like, wait a minute, let's go back and check our work. Oh, uh oh, like we've really just been exporting all of this impact to other regions of the world. So not to not to go too far in the weeds on that topic, but I think to get to zero, we need a reset, uh, like a reframing of what zero means. And to me, it means really having minimal impact on the the holistic, you know, the whole world. Like how do we localize energy? How do we you know, even down to like repurposing roads. Like, I don't think we should be transitioning vehicles. I think we should be moving to bicycles. (laughs) 
and, you know, and walking and doing things like culturally that are going to be massive shifts that aren't talked about yet. So anyway, sorry, these are meant to be quick answers. No, (laughs) I think that's, I think that's a, a great answer thinking about it in, in a different sense, because ultimately the, the question of how we get to net zero, it's almost like you, what you are doing there is framing what matters in that question of what is the end Mm -hmm. goal of getting to net Mm -hmm. zero. And what really matters is that we are, we are not harming each other Mm -hmm. and that we are providing the, the abundant life that, that we can. And how we do that, I think is always a moving target. Mm -hmm. There's, there's the, the idea of, of the, um, of course, I'm going to forget it now. But the, like the, the moving averages mm-hmm. through time and and what we're actually setting mm-hmm. the baseline mm-hmm. to. So it's a shifting baseline of what we're actually looking mm-hmm. at and what it means to harm mm-hmm. others has definitely shifted right. in the past 100 or 200 years, and now it it really matters. What does that mm-hmm. mean? To us, a lot of people think it's okay. Well, we have to have zero carbon in the atmosphere or producing mm-hmm. zero carbon emissions anthropogenically mm-hmm. is how we don't hurt anybody. Yeah. But it's, it's a, yeah, but that's an important it is, thing. It is. It's like, we have show to understand me, what you know, we're trying from to do. a project perspective, I'm going to show you net zero through 150,000 metric tons of CO2 saved and clean power produced. But, but really, like, world like show me net zero war and then i'll i'll believe that net zero carbon emissions can happen you know like show me show me net love for everybody and then i'll believe that like we can get to net zero carbon you know what i mean yeah those are that's deep (laughs) yeah so so with that now you actually get to ask me a question okay um on a on a geothermal technology excitement scale, where does geotest rank for you? <laughs> oh man, uh, what's what's the scale? Okay. Yeah, zero, zero to, to 10. ten. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would, I would say it's it's probably like fifteen. Nice. <laughs> On a zero to ten scale, I like it. it. It's one of those that it. I I do think it it opens up so many opportunities mm-hmm. because there are areas that that simply don't have geothermal yeah. energy, but they have an abundance of other opportunity, other renewable resources. And once you start pairing them, and now thinking about all of the overlying technologies with cloud computing and optimization and real-time monitoring and all of the different ways that you could automate the way that systems work Mm -hmm. together. That is where you can start having a diverse microgrid type Mm -hmm. system that can be backed by by the subsurface. And so now you're reducing your footprint 
you're making things that can be local because now you you just need the right type mm-hmm. of rock and you can just move forward yeah. with that. So it it really is I think it it will continue to be meaning geothermal in the subsurface, I think will continue to be a foundational piece of of the the future of yeah, energy. I think so too. That's awesome. I love that answer. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Good. So Mike, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you'd like to no, say? No, thank you for the conversation. And I guess the only thing I do want to say, reach out to me anytime. I'm on LinkedIn, easy to get a hold of. I love meeting new people. So uh, hope to meet everybody that's listening out there. Yep. And we will have a link to your LinkedIn in the cool. show notes so everybody can can find you. So thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, share it with a friend and leave a review telling me what you're enjoying most or what you would like to hear more of. If you want more news and energy-related stories, we have all sorts of energy-related podcasts on OGGN. You can find them by connecting with us on LinkedIn or visiting the website. If you're into stickers, I have a way that you can get some from us. Go to my show notes, find that one-question survey link, Go fill it out, and if you do, we'll send you some stickers. Finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email. That email is joe.batir at oggn.com. If you don't use email, find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low-carbon, high-energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.